There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that, whilst emanating from within the discipline, have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Ray, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. In 1994, the British band Bleu released a song called Boys and Girls. It was named Song of the Year, having peaked at number five in the UK charts, a catchy song with an intriguing lyric in the chorus, which goes like this. Girls who are boys, who like boys to be girls, who do boys like their girls, who do girls like their boys. I didn't really understand the lyrics, although I quite liked the song. But I had a sense of gender fluidity for the purposes of sexual excitement, titillation, fun. Fast forward to 2022 and those lyrics might mean something quite different. We're living through times with terms like gender incongruence, where gender identity and biological sex do not align, and gender dysphoria, when gender incongruence causes clinically significant distress to the individual, where these terms for some constitute the beginning of a journey of gender-affirming care with all that it entails. On today's podcast, which I've entitled Chromosomes, Feelings and Gender, we're going to take a journey of exploration, a journey that can take one from a feeling of discomfort to sex reassignment surgery with everything in between. So joining us for today's episode, I'd like to welcome Drs. Wendy Duncan and Elna Rudolph. Wendy is a subspecialist child and adolescent psychiatrist. She works in private practice at the Day Clinic here in Johannesburg. Elna is a medical doctor and she's the founder and clinical head of My Sexual Health. She has various qualifications in sexual health, including a higher diploma in sexual health and HIV medicine through the Colleges of Medicine of South Africa. She has a master's degree in sexual health through the University of Sydney. She's also a fellow of the European Committee for Sexual Medicine, and she's currently serving as the president of the World Association for Sexual Health. In addition, she's an executive board member and director of the South African Sexual Health Association, as well as being a member of the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare. Her work has been published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, and she also acts as a reviewer for that publication. So, Wendy and Elna, thanks for taking the time to to join us for this episode of Beyond Madness. And, and I, I must say that the issue of gender has evoked a, a, a maelstrom of controversy in recent times from a Supreme Court judge nominee in the United States of America, unable or unwilling to define what a woman is, to the impending closure of and likely class action lawsuit against the Tavistock and Portman National Health Service Foundation Trust's Gender Identity Development Service for Children and Adolescents. That's in the UK. So, um, you know, small wonder, as the host of Beyond Madness, I thought very carefully about entering into a conversation about the topic of gender dysphoria. And yet we have covered on this podcast series emotive and potentially controversial topics, abortion, the trauma of loss of a loved one to suicide, physician-assisted dying and suicide, as well as more recently looking at the parole system in South Africa in relation to a victim of kidnapping and murder. Each episode had the potential for the sensational. None were. 
They were conversations about issues, rational, factual, albeit not without emotion, and hopefully providing you, the listener, with quality information which you could best decide how to use in shaping your thinking. So today's conversation begins, as always, with setting the scene in order to contextualize the issues to be discussed. So I'm going to start with you, Elmer, and the whole issue of sex versus gender. I mean, there seems to be a conventional, there always was, a conventional understanding that sex determines gender. seems to have been a basic biological reality. In recent years, this has kind of been questioned and, and contested to the point where even the notion of, of, of chromosomes determining sex, you know, the sex chromosomes, X and Y, XX female, XY male, have also been brought into question. So could you define sex for us and then gender? So we typically refer to biological sex, and some people don't even like that label, because in almost all countries in the world, biological sex is determined by the doctor that delivers the baby, that looks at the genitals, and then says, this is a boy or this is a girl. And I mean, we know it even happens antenatally on the ultrasound. So we basically attach a label to a person that predicts their political stance, their role in society and many other things just by looking at their genitalia on the day of their birth, you know, so that is pretty intense. But if you look at biological sense, um, there are multiple things that contribute to it, of which the chromosomes is one. And then also the phenotype, so what the person looks like on the outside, as well as the hormones. And the reason why it being so contentious is, for instance, you get a person with XY chromosomes, so that would mean that they they are male by their chromosomes, chromosomes, but then they have something called androgen insensitivity syndrome. And the first time I met a person like this, it was a student, and she was studying something that's very typical for females to study, and she had a 100% typical female um, phenotype. You know, she had Big breasts, she had round bum, typically female, and um, she didn't start to menstruate. And only when she went to study health sciences, she realized that it was a problem that she didn't start to menstruate. And then um, we realized that she has this, um, she doesn't have a vagina, she doesn't have a uterus, she's got male internal genitalia, but she's got androgen insensitivity syndrome. So although her hormones measure perfectly normal um, for a male, the receptors in her uh, body does not take up this androgen and then um, expresses it in her brain as well as in her body. So this is actually an intersex person, but that person does not relate with being intersex at all. Mm. She's a girl. She's as girly as it gets. She's going to marry a man one day and they're going to have a heterosexual relationship, Um, but she has XY chromosomes, you know, so that's a pretty unusual condition, very, very rare, but it happens. And that was the first time that I could really see how you genes does definitely not determine your gender. I came across a figure that said actually one in 15,000 females actually has uh-huh. XY chromosomes. So it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, I'd, I'd never encountered that before. So I was kind of surprised, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, the individual looks like a woman. Yes, absolutely. And, and yet the has individual- male chromosome uh, configuration yes. XY. Yes. Perfectly female. You know, you get, intersex people who are a bit more androgynous or you can clearly see that it is intersex, but this person does not relate with being intersex at all. She is 
completely female. She just carries male genes and male hormones. So, you know, there are two determinants that we as doctors would look at and say, this is a man. But when when she was born, her genitalia wasn't very ambiguous. So the doctor didn't question his own diagnosis of her being female. So she was assigned female at birth. And then she was raised female, but that was an incorrect assignment of right. her sex yes. because she actually had this androgen insensitivity now, now, syndrome. Now, this goes the other way too, where apparently one in 20,000 males are XX. <laughs> yes. So um, what, what that would look like is um, that the person is exposed to androgens right. intrauterine typically, and that would then – cause uh because you know neutral we we are all neutral and then the exposure to androgens is then what makes men develop into more masculine characteristics and makes the gonads um uh, go down and when that child then gets born they look like what a doctor would call male. So, yes, it happens. It it does really happen. And I find being a religious, a very religious person myself, um, you know, and and, and having to have this conversation in the church often, this is the place where people who are very judgmental about this, who want to go, oh, the teenagers are just confused and, you know, love to put people into exact boxes. When you start to bring up these conversations where they're often, no, not often, it is rare, but very clearly... We do see them yeah. where pink isn't pink and blue is not blue. I suppose one of the concerns is that we have to change everything because on occasion something is not as it should be or as we understand that it should be or as we understand it to be. Maybe that is some of the issue that that, that, that people struggle with. Yes, because we love to label things. And for me, the whole thing about – being more gender neutral, uh, etc. Look, I don't think we should put all kids just in white and yellow um, necessarily, but we should definitely be a community that's much, much, much kinder to kids that are queer or who are a little bit, you know, who's in a wheelchair or who needs oxygen or who has learning disabilities or anything that we other. We need to create communities where People who are typically other are safer because that's a nicer community for our kids to grow up in, for our elders to, um, you know, grow old in, etc. That's my take on it. Well, I suppose what we're talking about is the spectrum of humanity. That, Absolutely. you know, there is the good old bell curve where everything sort of conforms in the middle 80% and then you've got 10% on either side, uh, which represent the, the extremes of normality. So I think that, you know, if you're on the bell curve, it's within the normal spectrum, but it may be that you sit in that one 10% or the other 10% and you're not in the middle 80% and therefore uh, you might be seen as abnormal when in fact you're part of the spectrum of normality. So I think that's what I'm hearing you talk about is, is, is what is the Absolutely. spectrum? And, and, and as we understand it more fully, it does challenge conventional thinking, rightly yes. or wrongly. I mean, you know, we're not sitting here in judgment. We're just trying to understand what are the issues. And I think that where you challenge convention, it does create potential controversy. It certainly creates a level of discomfort as people have to get their heads around, okay, hang on a sec. This is what I thought it was, but apparently this is what it might well be or maybe is. And I think that's where some of the difficulty comes in. But then moving from sex, which we say is yes. biological, 
I then want to move to gender because I think, you know, for, for, for most people, I would put myself in that category, sex and gender kind of one and the same thing. Yes. You're a man, therefore that's, that's your gender, you're male. Whereas yeah. in more recent times, that's kind of shifted in terms of saying, well, maybe it's not quite like that. Yes. So we know that for about 80, uh, 98 to 99% of people are cisgender. So what the doctor looked at is actually, and said that the person is, their sex assigned at birth is actually the same as their self-identified gender. Right. And um, I teach my three and five-year-old because, you know, they love labeling automatically without us teaching them boys to this, girls to this, pink and blue, etc. So I teach them out now already, how do you know if a person is a boy or a girl? It's not because they have long hair or they wear blue. Um, if, if you're not 100% sure, you can ask the person because a person knows whether they are a boy or a girl. There's no external characteristic about a person that makes them a boy or a girl. Gender is an internal experience. And, um, you know, it's not actually a choice because I also have a bit of a problem with, um, I think it's problematic to teach children that you can choose your gender because that plays into the very conservative narrative of, you know, us just having no rules and when there's no rules, there's anarchy and mm. anarchy is going to lead to the end of the world kind of thing. Yeah. I think we just need to uh, sensitize people to the fact that a person's gender is determined internally. And it's not for other people to choose what your gender is. Um, you know what your gender is. My friend told me about at her school, there were two trans kids. And then the parents of those kids insisted that the whole school from grade one to grade 12 get a lecture telling them that all kids can choose their gender. And that sounds like it's really a choice. I don't think it's a choice. I think Gender is just as part of who you are in your being. Mm. Uh, you know, it's internal. Is this is this a little bit, you know, because there was a, a thinking around sexual orientation, yeah. whereas the reality is the kids who are gay, lesbian, homosexual, as you would want to call it, they had an understanding from way back. And yes. it wasn't a choice. It was just yeah. who they were. So I'm hearing a I'm, I'm hearing a parallel. Is, in, it's in, similar, and and but I think that when it comes to a person's gender identity, for most people, and many people are fluid or non-binary, yeah. but most trans people are actually completely binary. You know, they girl girl or boy boy. Um, they're not fluid or or non-binary. But um I see more fluidity actually in sexual orientation than I see within gender, to be honest. Yes. Um and and people can choose to behave in a certain way and play in a certain way. You know, so you know how you can get a straight guy who sometimes has sex with men and that right. does not make him gay. Um or vice but versa. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, but similar. I mean, the fact that I wear pants and I'm a doctor, which is quite a male kind of old, you know, previously it was only men that became doctors. That doesn't make me gender non-conforming completely. A little bit, you know, yes. but it doesn't um, change my gender identity, which is female. So you're talking about gender as something which is experienced rather than assigned. Absolutely. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. Absolutely. So then the provocative and maybe controversial question is, should all babies be without gender? No, I think that we should, uh, I really think, you know, from at the World Association for Sexual Health, we are very much involved in um, the politics of things and yes. how legislation 
can infringe on people's human rights and how that then causes a lot of harm for people. So I definitely think all countries around the world should have the option um, to leave that open and um, that it is not necessarily necessary to immediately label everyone at birth. Uh, you know, it's so normal. I, I send my kids to primary or to play school and then they already want to know their gender and I think, is it really necessary? But, you know, we, we used to that. How many men, how many women, how many men, how many women? But I think we can move towards a world where it is not so important to, to label every single person. It will be helpful for the few intersex people out there if they are not labeled. Because what's the biggest harm that's done is if they go and because they want to put a label on the child, cut a child's genitalia, and then that child identifies as different to what they were assigned at birth, and then you've cut away erogenous tissue and crucial tissue for them to be able to be the gendered person that they were ought to be. You know, you cut away too much, basically. Well, I think that there is a prevailing convention, and personally I'm not too sure how quickly that is going to disappear. So I mm. think that these kind of conversations may seem uh, difficult, I think, for most people to kind of get their heads around because traditionally – there's male, there's female, and, you know, what happens down the road, well, but initially that's where it kind of uh, begins. But I think that, you know, I was, I, I was thinking about this and I, I was thinking about the term the Great Reset, and I was wondering <laughs> to what extent we're not moving into that kind of territory when we discuss these things. I wanted to shift focus a little bit, and I wanted to bring Wendy in here. Now, the NHS, that's in the U.K., um, they recently published uh, an interim service specification document. That's actually very recently on the 20th of October of, of, of this year. Um, and that's with reference to the uh, aforementioned, because I gave it in my intro, the closure of the Tavistock service and what will follow. And, I mean, some of the salient aspects of that content we'll kind of get into. But there were certain terms that they started to use. Now, I, I started out with the term gender fluidity, gender incongruence. And so, you know, Wendy, as a, as a psychiatrist, that brings us ultimately to gender dysphoria in mm. children and adolescents and adults. That's in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders number five. So, so, so what is your sense of, of this terminology, the fluidity, incongruence, and gender dysphoria, seeing mm. as it is in the DSM-5, and you're a child and um, adolescent subspecialist absolutely. psychiatrist. So let me, uh, let me start uh, with the understanding of gender fluidity, and I think it follows on what Elna was saying, is it's that capacity to interrogate, to understand and experience change over time of one's expression or uh, the way one un identifies with one's uh, Gender, right. and and I suppose that's created in more recent time space for for the exploration of of the non-binary uh, of that gender can be. Yes. Um, there's sort of a bit of a, a flow in between gender incongruence and the gender dysphoria. So from a from a clinical perspective. Uh, as you've said, the gender dysphoria is something that is uh, mentioned in the, the DSM-5, which mm. is a psychiatric classification uh, schedule. And that's really about an intensity of unhappiness, dis-ease, dissatisfaction, uh, and, and puts the individual in conflict between how they experience their gender mm. and the gender that was 
assigned at birth right. and the gender expected roles. Right. Um, you know, where gender, where dysphoria is really kind of can be quite a generic term for unhappiness, discomfort. Yes. Um, in this particular clinical context, it, it's clinically significant unhappiness right. that is impactful in the individual's life. And how does it manifest? How do we start to first see this uh, emerging in a young child? So, the, you know, and it depends, again, at what, what age we're seeing the child. Right. So, you know, in a younger child, um, sort of early on, sort of three, four years old, there may be a manifestation or a determination in that child's uh, behavior that they are not what their, their outward sex um, is experienced to be. They are not the gender assigned at birth, that they are uncomfortable wearing the clothes that are assigned to that gender, that they're uncomfortable playing the games that are assigned to that gender, or even playing with, with the playmates that one would typically, so the little cluster of girls, yes. that they're not happy as a boy to be playing with, with other boys. They'd rather um, be playing with girls. And, and there's a rejection of... Um, of sort of gender normative right. roles and 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 expressions of 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 gender, as well as sometimes a dislike and unhappiness with their anatomy. Right, I think that 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 kind of specifically speaks because I could say to you that often the emergence of sexual orientation manifests in that way, where boys are more comfortable mm. playing with girls, girls more comfortable playing with boys, and the parents are kind of like, well, come on, you know. <laughs> These are the toys you should be playing with. These are the colors you should be attracted to. And what the hell are you doing with my makeup? So, I, you know, I, I, th I think that often sexual orientation emerges in that context as well. So I think that what you've added is the fact that they're uncomfortable with their genitalia. Mm. So that seems to me to be a specific issue. Do you want to elaborate just a little bit on that? Because I think for me that's, that kind of makes it more specific. So the discomfort, and I suppose if we if we stay with uh, sort of thinking about the younger child, yes. the discomfort, um, you know, can be get quite destructive to the point where okay. uh, the child can almost physically want to harm, uh, you know, want to have their particularly for boy children yeah. to have their their genitalia removed. Um, were they were they really really unhappy and and quite ashamed with their genitalia? I mean, in the in the older child, in the adolescent, yes. this is where we often talk about the dysphoria, yes. and we often in the the day to day con conversation with with a um, a gender incongruent adolescent, we would and they would use the term of dysphoria as to to be the unhappiness with the emergence of secondary sexual characteristics mm. with their breasts, if they're a birth assigned right. female, their breasts, uh, the shape of their body, right. etc. And, and, you know, the same applies to young men. And this causes incredible distress, mm. incredible emotional distress. DSM is a little bit different to ICD. 
Now, the International Classification of Diseases, they, they, they published the ICD-11, which is the most recent uh, uh, version. That's a World Health mm. Organization. The DSM-5 is from the American Psychiatric Association. And I think what is quite interesting, and Elna, you might want to comment on, on this, is that they actually now, in ICD-11, which apparently came into effect in February of this year, although it was published in 2019 in May, they now speak about gender incongruence of childhood, adolescence, Adulthood, And what's really interesting for me is they've taken it out of mental health and they've put it into sexual health. So now it's no longer in the domain of the psychiatrist. It's actually been moved out of that domain. So I think that's a very interesting development to what extent that's more appropriate or not, because I think with the conversation Wendy and I are having, we're talking about dysphoria. So that kind of puts it in the uh, mental health domain. But in fact, ICD is talking about gender incongruence. There's no mention of gender dysphoria per se. So Elna, your comments on that? Look, it's very political. Uh-huh. And the the whole aim of ICD-11 is to have an internationally standardized classification system for people to be able to access care. Right. And for instance, if you look at the history of being gay, um, it was labeled as a disease to keep people out of jail. Hang on a second. It wasn't that long ago that psychiatry, I think, Wendy, I can't remember. I think it was DSM before DSM-3. Yeah. Which was long ago. Yeah. Yes. So, um, it was useful to label being gay as a disease because it kept people out of jail. And then later on, we realized that it's stigmatizing people. So then we needed to, um, uh, make it not as a disease anymore. And it's the same route that the, that the trans, um, it was important to get it into DSM-5 to legitimize it. And, um, but for ICD-11, it, ICD-11 is all about funding. Where does the funding come from? Hmm. And for us, as the World Association for Sexual Health, we worked very closely with the WHO in order to develop this chapter on sexual health. So we see um, the old transgenderism. That's actually transgenderism from the ICD-11, F64.0. We we wanted it in the sexual health chapter in order order to uh, basically move away from conversion therapy. Because if it sits within psychiatric um, diagnosis, look, I can talk about this for many hours. And I've got colleagues um, that are much more, that can speak on this much more eloquently and passionately than I can. But um, we we, uh, wanted to... um, Now I lost my trail of thought there with... Well, um, I think think the, the, the issue for me, which caught my ear, was funding. And yes. you know, there's always, what concerns me is that money trumps yes. the, 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 the focus on the patient. Because you Absolutely. see, amidst all of the, the hype, and I'll call it that, and, and the hysteria and the sensationalism, my concern is I want to get to the individual who is suffering and who genuinely Mm. is distressed and consistently and persistently distressed because I think that I want to try to tease out everything else, zero in on them and give them exactly what they need. Because for me, that, that, that seems to be the key issue. And I, I, I've, I've just kind of been a little bit concerned that, that, that to some extent, 
that kind of individual suffering, which I think, Wendy, we see as clinicians in front of us, gets mm. lost amidst everything else, the politics, mm. the funding, etc., etc. And I suppose, Absolutely. I suppose the importance of this conversation is that I wanted to get to, to that specifically, because I want to make sure that we're doing the right things by the individual. So, you know, ICD-11 has, has taken a decision, and so I understand that. But I want to get back to the youngster who has gender dysphoria. So I'm going to shift back to, to, to Wendy, because obviously gender dysphoria, and it's kind of interesting because gender dysphoria hasn't got the word disorder attached to it. So I'm assuming it's, 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 is it a symptom? Is it a disorder? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I kind of find myself thinking, well, uh, okay, because if we take dysphoria as a psychiatrist, just saying, all right, there's probably a differential diagnosis that we need to work through. So when do your comments on that? Mm, thank you. Absolutely. Um, I think, and, and it is interesting, you know, that it's not in fact a disorder. Yeah. Um, and, and we should be asking, is this, you know, a symptom? So, you know, in terms of, of getting to the point of assisting the individual who's presenting distressed, um, in my experience, you know, there are not that many adolescents who present straight off the bat to a psychiatrist with this as an underlying problem. Right. But they often would present uh, dealing with depression, dealing with anxiety, uh, having engaged in a, a suicide attempt or, or deliberate self-harm, and in the process of accessing a space to talk and some sort of care and treatment, we start to slowly get to the point of, of understanding that that the um, you know the the gender incongruence uh, may well be there. I mean, on the other hand, I do have to mention the young person who is very clear from very early on in their life that they are uh, gender variant, and will come into the room yes. and say, "Well, I don't have a problem, but they do. I'm fine." Yeah. I'm okay, yeah. but they're the problem. So, I mean, this is kind of bringing me to the point of the persisters versus the desisters. Mm. So this is, this is the, the data that I've been looking at. And, I mean, what I've seen is that approximately 80% will ultimately desist, but approximately 20% or thereabouts will persist. And so I think it's we, – we want to make sure that those are the ones we capture – capture, but – in a therapeutic way, not in a, a different kind of way. These are the ones that we really, these are the patients that we really focus on. Not, not, not that we don't focus on the others, but in terms of where we take the process. Because I'm a little bit concerned mm-hmm. that there may be a significant percentage who would desist and we include them with those who might persist inappropriately. So I'm not sure what your comments are. I mean, Elna, you, you, you might have a comment and then back to Wendy on, on that, because that, that for me is an issue. This is such a emotive, this particular topic, because yeah. people who, who the transphobic agenda yes. um, always uses this data to make it look like, you know, Wendy and I are just hell of a irresponsible and just throwing hormones at everyone and cutting kids and things like that. And that is particularly why we were so adamant in um, ICD-11 to have gender incongruence in children because that's where you see the D-sisters that you're talking about. Many gender incongruent kids are not uh, transgender. They um, are much more likely to be gay, uh, according to the data. But when puberty hits, 
the those kids um you know they're coming to themselves and they might be gay or not uh, you know and they go on with their lives it's true most gender incongruent children how do doctors treat gender incongruent children we just offer a supportive framework yeah. for them and their families yeah. that's it mm. We don't give them any medicine. We don't cut them. We do nothing for them apart yes. from a, a supportive framework, which might include engaging with the school to make sh sure that the school is a safe environment for them, etc. Then when they hit puberty, if they are um, already in care, the ideal situation is that we do then block their puberty um, in order for them to get a little bit older to take a bit more time to make a proper decision about whether this gender incongruence um, is is going to persist or desist. Mm. And about that, we can also talk for a few days, and there's yes. lots of literature on that. Mm. But then the thing is what, ha what happens in reality to most of these kids is that they are not in care at the time of puberty. They already go through puberty, and then you have a girl who starts to get erections and you have a boy who starts to menstruate and they hate it. Kids, adolescents aren't too comfortable with puberty. That's true. Yeah. But it does not make them want to commit suicide. Mm. So, um, if a child is gender incongruent and they are exposed to puberty, the, puberty is the determining factor for them uh, very often, you know. So by the time that we see them as adolescence, which is a different class of a person. It's not a child that plays with boys and wears boys' clothes if she was assigned at birth. This is yeah. now a person who'd already been exposed to the hormones. Um, and, uh, and they are then, they are much less likely to desist. I can tell you with having treated probably in the range of 200, um, adolescents, uh, I've got one that desisted. Right. So you're talking about the, individual who moves through childhood into adolescence unwavering and i suppose wendy that would bring you in because at, at, at the end of the day as a psychiatrist one does have to be aware that there could be a whole host of other issues taking place i mean certainly you know if if, if we look at the biopsychosocial approach we're saying well what is going on how do we get to the essence of, of, of what is happening here? Are there comorbid psychiatric conditions? Mm. Are there mm. family circumstances? So your thoughts, Wendy, mm. in terms of one's approach, if one is in the clinical situation encountering this kind of, you know, presentation. Mm. Mm. And I suppose this highlights the, the, the need for a multidisciplinary in, uh, sort of team around yes. a young person of, you know, of this nature, right. which is unfortunately not always uh, accessible. So absolutely, we need to look at both what we call co-occurring conditions as well as, as what we'd call a differential diagnosis. Mm. So if this is not gender dysphoria, what else could it be? Right. Um, or if the dysphoria about gender is not in terms of what we're talking about, mm -hmm. specifically, I'm not happy and, and that's mm -hmm. all it is. Is there something else going on? Absolutely. So yeah. we've, got to, we've got to look at the fact, you know, we've got to consider the fact, could this be some other form of somatoform condition? Right. Is this more about of a, uh, a body dysmorphia? Right. Could this child um, have, which is thankfully very rare, uh, a psychotic condition? Sure. Uh, could this child in a, in a space of a deep depression develop right. uh, somatic 
preoccupations that are destructive towards him. So that's the, on the one hand. And then on the flip side, we have to say, well, yes, we know that uh, children and adolescents who have uh, gender identity difficulties have a lot of comorbid psychiatric conditions. Mm. Depression, and see, yeah. yeah. And personality. They and can have difficult so, personalities. Yeah, I mean, I was the, come to that. I mean, I mean, Absolutely. some of the data that I've seen suggest that there's been self harm in many mm. of these individuals mm. before they mm. actually present, and so one is looking at them within the context of of a difficult or disturbed personality structure. Certainly, and and the rates of sort of developmental trauma in these kids yes. tends to be quite high, and so we involve into evolve into oftentimes a, birth, a borderline personality structure. Yeah. Um, where identity is quite key. Yes. You know, where overwhelming emotional dysregulation becomes an issue and identity is quite key. And so one has to be really thoughtful in terms of, you know, where is this, this dysphoria or where is this identification coming from? And the other big issue, which, which we know is thought about a lot and I think still hasn't been resolved is the relationship between the autistic spectrum. Yes, because that, that I see dysphoria. coming into the literature, mm. but I wanted to, uh, I'll follow up on that, but I wanted to go back to the whole issue of identity because I think for me, the question is, is it about gender identity or is that the tip of the iceberg and in fact what we're looking at are identity issues maybe within the context of dysfunctional family previous traumas even sexual trauma so you know these kinds of issues i think and 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 you use the word thoughtful and i think that's very important as a psychiatrist that you're really thinking very broadly very deeply and you're looking not just at the individual but you're looking at the context of their existence mm-hmm. in terms of family in terms of peers all of these kinds of issues come into it so it really does require a very detailed assessment elna and then wendy yes it is true. And some of these kids come from terrible backgrounds. Um, the ones I see can all afford private care. And so right. they're actually the lucky ones, you know. Um, I, it's, we know how bad it is in informal settlements, etc. what those kids go through. But, um, you know, so you see an autistic child whose parents are divorced and they were sexually abused as a child, but they're still transgender. Mm. <laughs> you know, you do get them as well. Sure. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's really what I wanted to, 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 to pick up with Wendy because she'd mentioned it, but I didn't follow through with it. But I wanted to yeah. ask a little bit more about autism and mm. autism spectrum and the association with gender dysphoria. If, the, if you've got any more specific comments, Wendy. No, I think what's important is, you know, along with the surge in our kind of thinking around gender dysphoria, gender identity, has come a change in our thinking around the autistic spectrum. Okay. Um, so, you know, there are some naysayers who are saying, well, this is the pandemic of the 21st century, you know, mm. really. But the truth is they're not mutually exclusive. Yes. Um, you can well be on the spectrum and still be gender variant or have experienced gender incongruence. Yeah. Um, what we are still trying to understand, and I don't know that anyone has the final answer, is is there a particular cognitive style mm. in the individual on the autistic spectrum that makes them more likely to experience discomfort with their gender? Right. So um, would that would that then suggest that the point of entry into treatment is the autism as opposed to the gender dysphoria? 
So oftentimes it is. Oftentimes it is. You, you, you see that the, the young person has come typically for an anxiety related condition or depressive condition. Uh, and in the process of getting to know that young person, you realize that there, there is gender incongruence. I mean, the reverse has, has applied. And I've had an experience recently of having a family very angry with me for supporting a young adult in their uh, gender journey. And they're saying, but, you can't because you missed the autism, um, you know, and, and, you know, so, so it, it can certainly cut both ways. Um, and I suppose, again, I come back to the thing of needing a team, needing multiple people yeah. thinking around this uh, as, as part of a developmental process. Well, I think that the message I'm getting is that this is very delicate work, actually, and it's very specialized work. And so you need eyes coming from different perspectives to get a full picture. And that, of course, includes the parents because there's been a lot of written about how the parents are excluded. You don't listen to the parents. The parents don't know. And I, I think the parents are very important sources of information at the very least. And I think in order for you as a clinician to get a full picture – I think you cannot but work with parents in these circumstances. I might be wrong, but that's how I feel personally. And certainly when I work with adolescents, it's not that I reveal what the adolescent tells me to the parent, but I like to hear what the parent thinks about the adolescent because I might get a very different picture from the parents to what the adolescent tells me. So in terms of what I've just said, Elna, how would that impact upon you and your uh, entry or your role in working with these kind of, of, of children and adolescents and young adults, of course? Yes, I'm lucky that most of the parents are supportive. You know, that's they pay for the child to come and see me. Yes. So, but what you often see is divorced parents where the one is trying to take me to court every second week because I am putting their kids on gender forming, affirming care. Uh, you know, they're basically trying to get at the mom and then, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that can be very hard. But typically the parents are quite supportive and the way that I look at it, what I always explain to the parents when they sit there, because they are extremely concerned. I mean, any parent whose child is diagnosed with something that is going to result in lifelong care mm. will be concerned. And there's yes. a big sense of loss for that parent, and there's lots of things to be worried about. But the way that I explain it to them is if you, let's say now I'm going to put you on the spot, Christopher, but if I mm. say to you, let's say you've got life-threatening hypertension and yes. I needed to tell you that the only way I can treat this is by putting you on a hormone that's actually going to make you menstruate. Every month you're going to get debilitating abdominal cramps and you're going to menstruate. And if I told Wendy that for the same reason she's going to develop a beard, people are going to misgender her on the telephone constantly. She's going to develop an Adam's apple. You know, um, she won't be able to pass as a female, but this is going to save her life. Uh, some people would would listen to that and go like, oh, yo, no, that sounds crazy. No, thanks. I don't want that treatment. I'll take the hypertension. Yes, exactly. Some people would say, okay, no, just please save my life. Now, basically what we know is that gender-affirming care is life-saving. I just got back from America last week, and the latest data I saw there, 27 times more likely to commit suicide, adolescent right. with gender incongruence. Okay. So, um, you know, if I could, if my child had, a, had, had something that made them double as likely to die, I would be pretty aggressive in seeking out any kind of treatment. So this is 27 times more likely. And, you know, suicide, we all know the consequence of suicide, and especially sure. if your child commits suicide. So basically, I think that 
um, we make the diagnosis of gender incongruence in the context of a very well-qualified multidisciplinary team. Right. It's not, it shouldn't be ever one person sitting there on their own, you know, and a child comes in there and says, oh, last week my friend came out of Strand and I'm also Strand and now please give me a hormone. So I think that's very important because this whole issue of social contagion yeah. has come up and I've come across information which, which, or, or data. There was a paper, a woman called Littman in 2018, yeah. and I, I think it's been criticized, but it's, it, it's very yeah. interesting data. And I think th- what, what I found striking, because I, I work a lot with eating disordered individuals, yeah. was the parallels that she drew between the social contagion of body image and weight yes. concerns that occurs in clusters and amongst female friend groups and linking or, or, or drawing a parallel. So I think one of the big concerns has been the social contagion effect which potentially has been proposed to explain the increase in requests or people identifying as transgender, seeking transition, and certainly yeah. the numbers have increased significantly in the last decade. So how, yes. does one, how does one understand that? I know that parents are very concerned about that, but what I just see is I this child comes in there and with the help of a team, a diagnosis has now been made. And then the only way to really confirm that diagnosis yeah. is to give them small amounts. Very, very, I've got extremely conservative approach to gender affirming care. I give very small amounts, yeah. very slowly, very, very measured and see how that child, uh, well, uh, adolescent, never a child, an adolescent yes. responds to the treatment. And then, Back to my point of you potentially menstruating and Wendy developing a beard. If this was just social contagion, if this was just a phase or, you know, the child trying to be rebellious because of their parents or whatever, if they then start to develop a beard, an actual beard, and people start misgendering them on the phone and, you know, or, I mean, you don't really let a trans women menstruate, but, you know, they develop the breasts, they develop this very feminine form, they start to cry for nothing, you know, they really change. And what happens? What have I seen happen to adolescent after adolescent of adolescent, even if they're autistic, they sit there with a smile on their face. They love it. They feel better. The parents tell me how they do much better at school. The depression improves, the anxiety improves, the social phobia improves. Um, there is really an improvement in that person's health. So this thing that would have caused unbearable distress in another person, mm-hmm. in a gender incongruent person, causes euphoria. Okay, so they what, love it. Okay, so what you're doing is you're using a puberty blocker, essentially. That's what that's the sort of general term. So no, um, I am not. I'm not a pediatric endocrinologist, right. so I don't do blockers. If the if the children are young enough to still need to be blocked, right. that gets done by a pediatric endocrinologist. Right. I see them when they are adolescents, when they are ready for hormones. So right. the people I see from Wendy's office, for instance. They've already gone through puberty. It's too late to block them. They are of age where we can actually start giving them gender-affirming care. Okay, so gender-affirming care within the context of what you're saying, now we're talking actually about hormonal treatment. Yes. So this is something different because I think there is a big issue around the puberty blockers as part of gender-affirming care. Are they appropriate? Are they safe? Should they be used? And the whole NHS issue around the Tavistock is now saying, actually, we don't have data. And I think it's an important issue to to, to put on the table because certainly in, in the NHS they're saying, well, anybody who needs a puberty blocker or who's going to go into a puberty blocker will be within the context of a controlled trial. 
So yeah. what they're saying, they're signaling it's research. You're saying, now hang on a sec, that's not who I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with individuals who've been through puberty and now we are going to move towards hormone treatment where we are going to shift them from yeah. their biological sex closer to the gender that they feel more comfortable being. Would that be correct? Yes. Yes, and sometimes they are 14, 15, 16. Right. Um, I think we should take into consideration the WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare. They published their standards of care eight recently. Yes. Um, and, I mean, they are not nearly as concerned about puberty blocking as the NHS is because they feel that, you know, the context of you're never going to get like randomized control trials is unethical in trans children because if you're going to randomize someone to not being blocked and then they commit suicide, mm. you, you know, you, you can't do that. So we're never going to have completely, we're not, never going to have the kind of data that we have on something like Viagra because you cannot do placebo controlled trials in trans children it's unethical so um it is but but yes i agree i mean even for me who knows a lot about this subject i don't engage in blocking i feel that's the field of a pediatric endocrinologist i would love if in south africa we could have all of them within a trial context as long as it didn't delay access because the problem is they need to start on that blocker very soon the moment that they have um, gone too far into, into puberty it's too late but then they may be only 13 you know so yes i don't want to give hormones to a 13 year old yeah. you should you should have them on there as a gender incongruent child already and have them in a supportive environment so that if they then decide to start blocking once puberty happens, you can, you can block them quickly. But practically, that's very difficult. So what we're talking about here are the persisters. Because yeah, obviously yeah. one doesn't want to put these no, potential no. desisters into that pool. No. Because that's obviously a, a concern. So my question to you, Wendy, is are you able to provide the kind of guidance that says, uh, I think this would be appropriate here because I think that clinically mm. we're dealing with a persister, not a, de a potential mm. desister. You know, it's an interesting one. And in my career where I had exposure and worked with those patients was within the context of an academic, a tertiary academic unit, right. um, where I did, in fact, work with pediatric endocrinologists, and we had the child and family unit. And, you know, in that context, we were able to engage in that kind of treatment, a much more different field in private practice. Right. Um, because as Elna's alluding to you, you're treading a fine line between an early emerging identity that is quite explicit and clear mm. and wanting to use a, a puberty blocker and the other child who may just be emotionally, behaviorally unstable. Right. But, you know, in, in my experience within the context of, of a tertiary academic unit, uh, we were able to provide that service and we were able to provide that sort of gaze and thought on a child and their family yes. in order for the blocking to happen. I don't know if that answers. Well, the I think, I think what I'm hearing is that there was a very specific context. And I think that it's a kind of context that is difficult to replicate in the private sector yeah. because at the end of the day, you know, when we work in the state sector, 
aligned to an academic institution, we see each other as professionals all the time. In the multidisciplinary team, we meet on a regular basis, and and we are very comprehensive in terms of getting the families involved, getting the collateral information, and having a very broad view in terms of the in terms of the individual, the child, the patient that that we are looking at. So, I think for me, there's a there's a very important word that keeps coming to mind, and that is caution. And I think that what is important for 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 people to understand is that as medical professionals. Our first ethical principle is do no harm. So I think that we are all very mindful of whatever one is going to say, whatever one is going to do, whatever one is going to initiate as really thinking very carefully about is this the right person for this particular approach? The matching is, 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 is critical here because there can be significant consequences, Elna and then, and then Wendy. So even an adult that's 35, cannot be 1 million percent certain that this is right for them. And even the most qualified clinicians around the world, and I know them, can also not be certain. So when we sign our consent form, we always, it's uh, informed consent that is part of this, you know, decision-making process, um, joint decision-making. And they, they just say that, at this stage, they think that this is the next step for them, that, that this is right for them at this moment. Yeah. And that's why I'm so pro a very slow, very gradual approach. Yes. And that at any point when they realize that, you know, actually this isn't right for me, almost every single thing is reversible. Right. Surgery in South Africa is very scarce. Yes. We hardly do any surgery in South Africa Honestly. And I gotta tell you um, something. I had a look at some of the photographs of sex reassignment surgery from male to female and I squirmed. Yeah. Because it's 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 very dramatic surgery and it's 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 yeah. It's, yes, and it's it's expensive, and you know we don't have uh, the kind of expertise that we have overseas. It's not funded by our government. Generally, there's one. Of- to surgeries funded a year. So uh, people are always very worried that we're cutting kids, which we don't, honestly. Um, And so the surgery is, I mean, if you do gender-affirming surgery as a female, it is very difficult to reverse. But it's not done in people who've only started on hormones in the last three months. You know, that's done on people who have already made 100% sure that that is what they want. Um, And as you've seen from the studies, there is very high acceptance rate for the surgeries if people do go If you get to that point. If you get to that point. So So basically, you just have to think that we, you do have to have a lot of caution, but then at a point you make a decision to yeah. say, we have to give this a go in order to often save this person life yeah. and livelihood because they function much better in society if they are less dysphoric and right. um, all of the other. Outcomes. So I think, I think there's no rush to something definitive. Wendy, last thoughts? And I think it's incumbent upon us as as both professionals and parents uh, to really do our best to provide a non-judgmental, accessible environment that that provides information. You know, that challenges our own ideas about identity and gender. And and in that process, you know, we potentially could, you know, for some kids it's just a matter of, being allowed to wear boys' pants, hmm. you yes. know. So it's really about 
just trying to access the young person where they're at in a non-judgmental way, provide as much information and support as you can, and and we move forward from there. Right. I think that's reasonable. And I, I, I mean, I didn't get to it, but I mean, Finland, the UK, France, Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, I've seen all kinds of statements being released that really urge one thing caution. We need data. I know that, Elna, you would say there is a lot of data, but I think that we are we are challenging conventions, and so one has to understand that there is a, a call for caution. And I suppose, you know, in, in medicine generally, coming back to the do-no-harm principle, I suppose that is not a bad thing at all, and I would certainly endorse that. And I think you've emphasized the fact this is not a rush to something definitive. So we've come to the end of our time. I could have carried on and there were lots of things that we didn't discuss, but I think it's for the listeners to now go and inform themselves and, and, and to reflect. So I want to thank both of you, uh, for your time and, and sharing of your knowledge and perspectives. I think it, it, it has become a very emotive and, and to some extent politicized issue, which I think is, is, is distracting. Um, and I think we just need to be careful there that we are not unduly influenced in, in, in terms of how we approach things and how we ultimately side, decide on, on what is optimal. So in closing, a critical theme for me uh, uh, today has been one of identity and the journey to find one's true self. And for today's episode, a very short but profound quote from a, a, a writer, Ralph Ellison. He was a 20th century African-American writer and a scholar, best uh, known for a, a novel which I've put on my list of must-reads called Invisible Man, apparently a seminal work on marginalization from an African-American protagonist's perspective. And what he said was the following, when I discover who I am, I'll be free. So, remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness, in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time.